Hey everybody, you know who this is, Nick, once again, host of the Beer Got Me Here podcast. This next episode in our historian series, we bring in Maureen Ogle. She's a historian, self-proclaimed ranter, and an author of a few books such as In Meat We Trust and Ambitious Brew, which is the book that we focus on throughout this episode, both an earlier publication and a revised edition as of 2019. Now, I gotta say, as a full disclaimer, Andy's computer this night was pure garbage, and his audio is an absolute disaster. So boo to Andy for completely ruining this episode, but I did slip in a nice blooper at the end to kind of fix it all up. Beer Got Me Here podcast presents episode 5 of the Rolling Hops Beer Tour Series Historian Edition. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Beer Got Me Here podcast with your collab co-hosts Garrett and Andy from Rolling Hops Beer Tours in Toronto. So we're super excited to have a very interesting guest with us tonight. We have Maureen Ogle. Maureen Ogle is a historian, author, and I believe, I'm not sure if this is self-proclaimed, but I read somewhere that you are a ranter. Maureen has a world-class rant. I did read that as well. So (laughs) Maureen has a PhD in American history from Iowa State University. She wrote a widely engaging book entitled Ambitious Brew, the story of American beer. And that was published, I believe, in 2006. The text looks at... but, But has since been revised. Oh, my And republished with a very slightly different title in 2019 so there's oh. a much newer edition out yeah i think and I the, co- the cover features a, uh, it's from the 19th century and it features a woman r- riding a beer barrel holding a um an enormous mug of beer and um, i think there's a there's something else flying behind her anyway so there's a newer edition of the book but Go proceed, please. Sorry. Oh, I'm embarrassed. I think I only I only had no, 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 that's fine. Thank you for the correction. I've I think I only managed to grasp your um your original text. So I'll have to look into your new one. But but I believe the, the text, both the original and the revised, looks at the 150 years yes. of American beer history. Yes. A subject yes. we're very keen to delve further into. So Maureen also has written an array of historical texts, most recently, I believe. And I could be wrong about this, but I believe in 2013, you wrote In Meat We Trust, an (laughs) unexpected history of carnivore America. As a vegan, I might not ask too many questions about that, but Garrett and Nick, perhaps you can. Just kidding. I'm interested to learn more about that as well. Um, But yeah, we're extremely excited to speak uh, with Maureen and learn more about the profundity and uniqueness of America's strong beer culture and history. So without further ado, Maureen Ogle, welcome to the Beer Got Me Here podcast. Thank you and welcome. Thank you, thank you for having me. Yeah, so maybe Maureen, can we start off um, maybe just with a pretty general question. Can you tell us a little bit about your your general history um, associated with beer? 
Well, it is very random and uh, well, yeah, random. Um, in I think 2002 or three, I was trying to think of a new book topic. I had just finished a book about Key West, Florida, and I was trying to figure out what to do next. Because, And I've discovered that you just, in all cases, just wait for your brain to do the heavy lifting. It will just tell you what to do. So, so I, you know, I, I'm, I mean, I'm actively kind of thinking, what should I do next? What should I do next? But I'm waiting for my brain. So anyway, one day I'm driving down the street in the big city near me. I live in a small town. So the big city near me in central Iowa, I'm driving down the street thinking about, I'm going to an Italian grocery, a hundred year old Italian grocery in Des Moines. I'm driving down the street and this beer truck about two blocks in front of me, this beer truck, this big red truck, it wasn't a beer truck, it was a big red truck crossed um, the street in front of me about a block and a half ahead. And, and the, it just rolled across and on the side of it, it said Budweiser. And my brain literally said, write a book about beer. That's where the book came from. You know, that that was the whole thing. So so now to cut to the chase, I did in fact write a history of beer in America. I knew absolutely nothing about it, but as an historian, I actually prefer to write about things that I don't know anything about because I don't really want an agenda. So I, I had to actually go, oh, I thought, wait, is Budweiser a beer or is that the name of a company? I didn't even know. <laughs> My whole experience with beer at that point was uh, drinking dime beers way back in the early 70s. Now everybody gets a sense of how old I am uh, in Iowa City, but I didn't drink beer, didn't know how it was made, didn't know what it was made about, nothing, nothing, nothing. And so I wrote a book about it. So Maureen, it was a, a total challenge from the get-go. There wasn't, you didn't uh, have any background whatsoever. I didn't have any background and I pretty quickly figured out, I think this is in the end, maybe the um, most important thing, because I have to say writing the book ended up changing my life. I should guess I should get that out of the way up front. It really did alter my life in ways I never in a million years imagined. Um, but at the time when I was writing the book, one thing I realized right away was there was almost, as a historian, there was almost no there was no other research out there. there. There were a few things scattered here and there, but it was clear to me that nobody, at least in the United States, had ever taken the subject seriously enough to consider it worthy of intellectual investigation. And uh, so that made my job hard because I, 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 I was, it wasn't like I was, um, you know, creating the the world, the earth from day one and resting on day seven, but there wasn't a whole lot to go on. And I just wanted to write a big survey, which was what I did rather than just stick, say, to one 50-year time period and investigate it in depth. So it, it was a bit of a challenge, I will say. Yeah, I, I think um, like in terms of you said there wasn't there was so much respect given to the subject when you started writing it. What what year mm -hmm. did you actually start writing Ambitious Brew? What well, there's a difference between researching and writing, but I, um, if I remember right, I think I signed the contract for the book because I sold it to a publisher, I think in early 2003. It, uh, well, no, I know it took me five years and it came out in 2006. So I guess 
six minus five, 2001, sorry, 2001. Okay, even before the Key West book came out. Okay, yeah, yeah. So uh, it was, it, it takes a while. It, it took five years. Gotcha. And it, in, in terms of, of research, like where, where did you have to go? What depths did you have to go to in terms Ooh. of obtaining your research for this? particular text and did you have well, to travel at all around the US yes. where, where did you go and where where did you look well the the book is only about american history of us beer i look at the colonial period briefly which is a grossly under researched period and the book real proper really opens though with the arrival of german immigrants in the united states in the 1840s and 1850s because that's when the first big um, commercial beer industry was born. And so, um, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time sitting in Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Public Library, which is a lovely place, reading microfilm. I mean, I'm talking just, you know, it, it, nowadays, I think everybody thinks everything is digitized. Trust me, folks, it ain't. <laughs> I spent <laughs> thousands of hours reading microfilm for this. Uh, I went to a uh, two uh, national archives, regional uh, sites. I was able to get a transcript of an important trial involving Budweiser in the 19th century from a historical society. I read a gajillion newspapers and a gajillion um, trade magazines at the end of the book, the book ends with a so-called craft beer period. It ends roughly in 2000, right? Right around then, which now seems like ancient history. I interviewed, uh, I think, if I remember right, 30 people for two or three hours at a time. So I had this, you know, people who are still alive. I, I don't think anybody, well, I think one person has died since then, but, you know, they were people who were, who were alive. So the book covers this big span. So, so did my research. It, it involved a bunch of different kinds of sources. It was, uh, well, it was a lot of labor, <laughs> put it that way. Sounds very intense, but all worth it, off the cost. Very intense, yeah. It's, a, it's being an historian is kind of an intense way to live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, why in, I, I guess that you touched on this a little more, but why you, you focused on 150 years and that sort of was the beginning of the large German influx mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. German brewers and the influence of the dominance of loggers into the American scene, as opposed to the more traditional British ale styles. Like that was sort of, that seems to be your focus. Was there, mm -hmm. was it sort of like, you have to start somewhere, you might as well start with the, the where the yeah. big macro guys really got their beginning, or was it just sort of a, you have to start somewhere, I might as well go, go from there. It, it is very much a case of, I, I, I realized right away, in fact, the very sort of first version of this book that I came up with actually started in Sumeria. In like 10,000 BC, you know what I mean? You just got to find a story to tell. So eventually I came to my senses and I, uh, I think my, um, again, when I started the book, I didn't know anything except that I did have this very, very, 
very vague recollection that sometime in the 19th century, there'd been some conflict about beer and German immigrants. And I swear to God that if I knew anything, that was the one thing I knew. So I was, I, I thought to myself, you know, I think you can tell an interesting story about what it means to be an American by writing about beer. Cause that was really my main goal. All of my books are really thinking about what the, what does it mean to be an American? Cause that's aside from being human and female, that's my primary identity. So that's what kind of drives my um, what I'm interested in. And it was just clear to me that beer was very interesting. And once it, a, a, an interesting way to look at that. And, and um, once I kind of, I kind of stopped thinking about Sumeria in 9,000 BC and the Egyptians and all that jazz, which is part of the very, 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 very ancient history of beer. I did realize that this, the main narrative I should focus on was with the emergence of the first commercial, big, really big commercial brewing industry in the US. And that was very much driven by German immigrants as opposed to English speaking immigrants in the colonial period and even up to about 1840. You know, there just wasn't that much interest in beer in the US. Most households knew how to make it. You could sure find beer, but there just wasn't a big uh, commercial market for it. So I started there. And literally the book actually opens with a guy a guy named Philip Vest, who founded what eventually became, after his death, the, the Paps Brewing Company. His son-in-law took it over, and it goes. And then the narrative takes us all the way to the year 2005. Actually, is when the book closes. So, you know, it's just kind of a big sprawling survey of beer in America. Yeah, it 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 goes into some, some, some fine depth for sure. I think if you don't mind, I'm going to read a little, a little part of your introduction that, that sort of analyzes the myth of the, the general beer history yeah. that everyone thinks to be, to be true. And if you don't right. mind, I'm just going to read this. Quickly. No, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. So you say, um, uh, let's see here. So the, the general myth, well, myth, I don't know if we could say myth, but the general idea that a lot of people have in terms of beer history is, it goes like this, back in the, and, and I quote, back in the old days, Americans enjoyed an abundance of fine local beers from thousands of breweries that were artisan workshops where skilled brewers crafted ales using only four ingredients, malt, hops, yeast, and water. Prohibition ended and how, how is, how is, Pelican age? Oh, I don't know. I think I said that wrong. Pelican age when beer came back in the 1930s. Hundreds of breweries opened their doors. Most were owned by old brewing families who were determined to brew only the finest and purest beers. Alas, their dreams died a borning <laughs> thanks to the con thanks to the conniving of a handful of corporate behemoths, most notably Anheuser Busch. Schlitz, Pabst, and Miller. These big brewers scorned honest beer in favor of watery swill brewed from cheap corn and rice. The big brewers added insult to injury by using crass commercials linked mostly to professional sporting events to sell their foul brew 
to working class people. By the 1970s, only a handful of brewers remained in American beer was a thin yellow concoction with no flavor and even less body. Baby boomers to the rescue. In the 1960s and 1970s, <laughs> young Americans backpacked through Europe and there, dis and there discovered real ales and stouts. They returned eager to try their hand at making those beers at home. In the 1980s, some of the home brewers opened microbreweries and brew pubs. These new artisans crafted beer of the purest and most flavorful sort. And so beer was rescued from the evil corporate dragons. So that's kind of, and I, I think that's so, you sum that up in such a way that is, like that tale is told over and over again. And it's, yeah. it's that how craft beer, particularly with the craft beer movement, that's sort of the heroic tale of the craft brewery coming with a sword to, to cast out Budweiser right. and Coors away. But you you come with this book to say, ah, that's a very, that's perhaps a, a widely oversimplified version of the story. Could you tell us maybe a little bit, I mean, you could go on probably for hours. Why is that a simplified <laughs> narrative in terms of America's beer history? Um, well, for a couple, well, first of all, remember when I started the book in the early aughts, 2000 aughts, uh, I didn't really know anything. So I, you know, I'm just trying to work my way through it. So I would, so people would say, so what are you working on? And I'd say, I'm writing a history of beer. And then invariably some guy would mansplain to me about the history of beer, which was that, you know, everything was wonderful and glorious until World War II. And then Anheuser-Busch came along and screwed it all up, blah, 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 blah. In fact, at one point, about two, three months into the project, I thought, wow, if everybody already knows what, you know, everybody I know is telling me what the history is, why am I bothering to write this, you know, but I thought, well, okay, maybe there's really a story here, you know, maybe, it, maybe that's not actually what happened. So I have to admit, I was a little um, weirded out in the early days, because I thought, what if that's the only thing there is interesting to say, but of course, it turned out that there was a lot more interesting things to say about it. But I think um, when I started the book in the early aughts, by that time, so-called craft beer, the thing formerly known as craft beer, was already, uh, what, uh, 25, 30 years old. And so if I would mention beer to a lot of people who drank anything more than, uh, well, I, I don't even know. It just seemed like every time I the subject came up, people always seemed to have this sense of, how beer got where it was in, you know, 2002, 2003, when I started working on this book. And um, I, I, by the time I was finished writing the book, I concluded that in part that mythology about these big bad brewers who came along and ruined beer and then the craft brewers saved them. I realized by then that that, um, construction of a history was very much part of the whole history of craft beer in the United States because that was kind of the founding narrative you know we are important because we're pushing back against these you know so so whether it was true or not didn't really matter it made a kind of good mythology for rethinking beer in the late 20th century it, none of it turned out real, you know, it's not really true, 
it's a very complicated story, but um, insofar as anybody thought about beer at all, as an intellectual construct, I'll just say, you know, in, two, in the early aughts, the, the rap was that, you know, these big brewers came along and ruined it, and then these craft beers brewers fixed it all and made the world, you know, a happy place again. And that's why a lot of people didn't really like the book when it came out, because it doesn't exactly um, affirm that narrative. Let's put it that way. You, um, yeah, you shattered the heroic tale of the noble craft brewer, Maureen. <laughs> Well, you know, they were, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, and I've since, you know, I've gotten to know a lot of them, but um, it wasn't, you know, I, the, the, the idea that somehow these corporations came along and ruined beer, that, that was just not exactly what happened. It was, cons brewers were responding to a consumer market that wanted a particular kind of beer. And that was also true, by the way, when Germans first started breweries in the 19th century, they're, what they're trying to do is make beer that will satisfy the German immigrants, which were an enormous population group. But then as those German brewers became successful, they want to expand beyond just German immigrants to other Americans who don't drink beer. So they change the beer to accommodate them. And, you know, that process of accommodation went on for decades until suddenly it's all illegal. And then afterward, the truth is that when prohibition ended, most Americans just weren't that interested in beer anymore. They were much more likely to drink soft drinks. And if they did drink alcohol, they were simply more likely to drink hard liquor. So, you know, the whole history of beer and what happened to it isn't just some simple tale of, you know, evil corporations. It's, um, it's a long tale of uh, consumer desire uh, how businesses respond to consumer desire, how desumer, consumer desire uh, is a driving force, and also sometimes how it's shaped by businesses that have already sort of got a market. It's a complicated story. That's what I, re I really liked about the history, that it, it really delves deep into just sort of into how deep the actual culture of beer is it's not a simple tale that can be as you accurately explain mansplained um as <laughs> it, it typically oh, can I've be heard. yeah yeah you have no idea yeah no, i yeah, i can only imagine but imagine but the research I mean... took you to a few of those <laughs> mansplaining <laughs> moments along yeah. the way i'm sure yeah i mean yeah. as as garrett and and i both know i mean we do um we do craft beer tours in the, in the city of Toronto. Mm -hmm. And, and in order to, to facilitate a, a two or three hour tour, I mean, we, we have to give those quick kind of punchy answers that, that right. do maybe follow that narrative a little bit of, Oh, like Americans and Canadians, they, they were able to travel more to the, to, uh, to Europe and explore the eclectic flavors that goes into more socioeconomic and, and cultural factors and economic factors right. that, that I think yeah. your book touches on really, really well. 
No, there's only so much that you can do if you're doing a tour with people for true. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, you know, you gotta, yeah, yeah. But I like it the good is, bits um, and the fun bits. And, and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Something, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like that. Um, but if we're, I mean, if we're just talking about the history of craft beer, I think um, I was the first person to really try to construct the history of craft beer if, if we can just talk because when you're doing your tours I'm assuming that you're focusing on for example the craft brewery industry because that's what you're giving tours of right you're not doing tours of 150 year old breweries because there are almost none right, that's right. <laughs> yeah right yep. <laughs> right so um the, the craft brewing industry in the United States in the United mm -hmm. States. Um, I, I, I was really the first person to try to write about it. And I don't say that because I'm being boastful, but to make a point that I, 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 um, I was trying to fit it into this whole 50, 150 year history, right? And, and I was trying to um, make sense of something that I myself didn't know anything about. And I, my, my view of it now is more complicated because when did that book come out? 2006. So it's like, I don't know. I don't, I can't do the math fast enough, but it's, you know, the beer industry has changed. The craft yeah. beer industry has changed mm -hmm. for sure. quite a lot for a number of reasons since then. And even, even when I was doing the research for it, it was all so new that I, I was just trying to like process things like Charlie Papazian and the founding of the American uh, Home Brewers Association and then the Brewers Association and the great economic beer bubble bust, boom bust of the 1990s and where the people came from who actually did start these breweries. Because some of them were like Ken Grossman, they were hippies and then some of them were like Steve Hindi one of the co-founders of Brooklyn Brewery in Brooklyn New York here in the U.S. who actually got into he and his partner got into home brewing because they were stationed abroad you know the you know people who were in the military or big corporations were stationed in, com in countries where they couldn't buy alcohol so it wasn't just hippies it was this whole um ethos of uh, trying to rethink beer, but that was part of things like trying to rethink food in general. That was the same time that there was this counter cuisine, a counter food revolution in the US. So craft beer is, um, I wrote about a handful of really genuinely pivotal figures because I was just trying to figure out what the hell happened here. <laughs> you know, what, <laughs> what exactly happened to go from, you know, 28 yeah. breweries in night or however many they were in 1978 to suddenly several thousand in the early aughts. I mean, you got to admit that's pretty nutty, right? So I, I was just trying to figure out where it came from. I think my view now is a bit more nuanced, at least I hope it was. For I'll just, for example, when I was finishing the book and, you know, right, it's been this five-year project and I'm getting to the end and I'm really trying to make sense of stuff. I do remember thinking at one point, I was looking at a bunch of photographs of the Great American Beer Festival, which is held in Denver every year and has been. So I think the first one was either 1981 or 1982. It, in many ways, it's a 
uh, a foundational institution in the history of American mm -hmm. craft beer because of the way it facilitated information and connections between and among a bunch of people who didn't know that they were all trying to make new beer. I was looking at all these pictures and I thought, man, here's one, again, I, this is after, you know, when I'm at the very end of the book, I thought, wow, this is a really white group. You know, this is a, this is a seriously white group of people. And I thought, you know, the whole thing has been, it's been white since the day I started this. Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of things that I think about now that at the time, because I was just trying to make sense of this big, huge, mysterious project, I didn't, I didn't think about as much, but I, I think the history of craft beer, it has become a very fruitful avenue for um, really trying to think hard about issues that matter to some people these days, like racism and sexism. You know, if you're interested in beer right now, you surely probably yeah. realize that those have mm -hmm. become very, and, and, and those things have all kind of been baked into the craft beer industry. And I did not address those things because again, I was just, mm -hmm. you know, this historian trying to figure out what happened here. So if I think if I did anything, what I did was provide sort of a, like a, a, a roadmap for other researchers, other scholars to go to dig deeper and look at it, at look at craft beer in particular. I'll, I'll give myself credit for doing that. <laughs> as you should, as you should. Yeah, well, I think, Maury, I, I think um, touching on what you mentioned is, it is a nuanced even question to, to contemplate uh, since the late 70s, early 80s, this craft beer boom, Garrett and I mm -hmm. like to say a renaissance or a revolution, revolution. perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> um, I actually yeah. wrote an article for All About Beer. Uh, they were doing some, All About Beer, for those who don't know, it, it is now sadly gone, but it was the first serious beer magazine in North America and certainly and definitely in the U.S. And it I think they started publishing in 1979 and finally only for various reasons went out of business a few years ago, but somewhere around 2008, I don't remember what the occasion was, but the magazine decided to do a craft beer revolution or not revolution. So the editor, one of the editors of the magazine wrote her essay was, yes, this was a revolution. And my essay was, no, it was not a revolution, oh. but of course, right now, I can't remember what I actually wrote, but I, I took the, uh, I was like, I, for some reason, I said, you know, not, well, maybe it was because by that time, I was like, well, you know, it's really just a business, no matter how we want to romanticize it, it's a, it's a business, right? That is one thing I will say that every brewery owner that I have ever met, it, it frustrates them that people that beer, craft beer fans, especially the maniacs, <laughs> they mm. don't get that it's a business, right? Yeah. It's not a bunch of groovy people getting together and making beer. It's a business. And uh, that, that, that was, um, that, that's always been the paradox of craft beer. It sort of mm -hmm. sold itself as this communal kind of 
communal fellowship worship, you know, of this wonderful substance beer. But the reality is it's a business just like whether it's Budweiser, Coors or, you know, Flying Dog or, you know, what, whatever. It doesn't matter what mm-hmm. brewery. They're all businesses. And in the end, it's just an industry. <laughs> I guess that was, that was kind of where my um, not exactly cynical, but practical self ended up on this subject. For sure. That's a good, I like that you mentioned that, you know, it's, it's just a business. And when Andy and I are doing our events and actually even when we're having, you know, we're working with uh, Nick and Beer Got Me Here podcast and talking with other guests, sometimes the question that is brought up is like with craft beer and like you were saying, you know, that exponential growth in craft breweries um, and in and the, and the, the vision or the view that it's very communal and groovy and fun. It's like, is it too, too saturated? How are those breweries going to you know, sustain themselves? Is it going to grow? And a lot of the conversations sort of, uh, I don't know, I guess they, they kind of are, are always broken down to it where we've seen it. It's got to be that mix of like keeping that communal vibe but at the same time, you got to make money. And, and how are they doing that? So it, yeah. I like that we always have those discussions on, on that. So it's, it's definitely come up a lot. So I, I like that you mentioned that. It's a little, I think, I think the current business of, I, I, I don't know how many there are in the U.S. I have no idea how many there are in Canada, but I think in the U.S. we're up to like 8,000 now or some crazy yeah. number, like, you know, some just ridiculous number. The one thing right. I, yeah. I, the, I will say about um, craft beer, I'm putting that in quote marks, is it, it rests entirely on a foundation of disposable income of a certain kind of affluence and what when well some people would say when uh, they would say if I, I will say when the economy crashes the global economy crashes in a big way uh you know half of them are going to close it's a wonderful idea but the idea it's a very difficult business model because if you want to only retail your beer, it's very hard to do that. You, you know, trying to find places that can sell beer for you because their shelves are already crowded. So then maybe your model is you're just going to count on a bunch of people in the neighborhood or whoever coming out at night and sitting there and having, you know, wonderful, profound conversations while drinking beer or maybe just enjoying a sense of community while shooting pool or something. But God those are both dicey in, in, in the day mm. and age we live in, you know, I mean, I don't know if, well, I'm old, so I'm going to accept myself in this, but when was the last time somebody, I mean, any of you went out and spent a, you know, an even, I mean, do you do that often enough to sustain a business? I, I don't know. There's also the whole restaurant business that does that as well. (laughs) That's right. No, no. I mean, it is just, uh, it it always struck me as kind of unsustainable Mm -hmm. if the economy were to truly crash. But I think COVID, I, I have to, I'll say one thing. I'm kind of amazed that more breweries didn't close Mm -hmm. during the year during the time of the pandemic. I, it's hard for me to think that the pandemic's over. I'm, I'm, I'm not, um, somebody who goes out much anyway so i'm haven't exactly gone back to normal but i i don't know when i think about what it keeps to get a, a place like a beer you know a, a a small brewery going it just seems um wow i don't know i don't i don't even know how these eight thousand breweries stay in business i, I think i don't I get think the answer to that is 
please. And I, I think a lot of it has <laughs> no, to do seriously, with... seriously, tell well, me. I, I honestly think social media was the biggest part of it. I, I honestly think social media is a curse, but sometimes it could be a cure for the right people. And I think that's breweries because what because I follow quite a few of them and they they have done a lot when it comes to social media trying to advertise trying to get Mm -hmm. their beer out there and when it comes to local everybody wants to support local and everybody who loves their beer it doesn't matter if it's Joe from down the road or if they're going to go across and get somebody else's beer they're going to go get it they're going to support them and just seeing all the work that because uh, a lot of these breweries have their own social media team. They're, they're, mm-hmm. The bosses usually aren't going to do it themselves. They'll have a team no. doing it. And they've been on it. They'll do that. A lot of them have started doing deliveries. And a lot of them have done the curbside pickups. And I think that's mm-hmm. been their biggest part was just getting the word out there. And they would be sold out. You would look online and they would say, yep. we're sold out. We're going to start brewing more. I think social media in this case was their biggest savior. Huh. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. In the I I I haven't mentioned this, but I'm actually writing another book. I I'm actually wow. writing two books at the same time right now, but I'm writing another book about beer. Wow. Uh, who's who's the anchor, the sort of hook of it is a brewery in New Ulm, Minnesota, which is in the United States, which is in southwest Minnesota it's 161 years old and it's been owned by the same family so the book is going to focus on that region it's the august shell brewing company now i forgot where i was going with this um (laughs) uh, no no i did but i wanted to bring it back because because i think you're you're um right about the social media this oh fuck i totally forgot (laughs) community maybe like like the community involvement yeah i oh oh i think i was just uh that i'm writing this other book and um oh yeah it had something to do with this new book <laughs> the way i'm the way i'm thinking about uh oh i totally uh it's gone sorry it has been oh, a ridiculously <laughs> long is this what writer's block looks like uh, no, no, not, no, no, this is not, no, I've never had writer's block, but that's not, that's just mm. trying to, my brain's trying to chase three mm. or four great ideas at once. And I totally lost yeah. that one. It may come back anyway. No, you're, you're in anyway. the hot seat. All right, so okay. okay. No, well, it's not really a hot seat. Anyway, I am writing the, it's going to say in the process of writing this, uh, this new book, I, it had something to do with, I've come to understand X and related, uh, but I've lost it. It's mm-hmm. just gone. So it'll, it'll, it'll come back. Yeah. What's the name yeah. of the Minnesota brewery? Just for, we would it's love to visit August, it. It's August Shell, S-C-H-E-L-L Brewing August Company. Shell. Yeah. In, in New Ulm, Minnesota, uh, it was founded by, German immigrants mm-hmm. who settled, they were also founders of the town and the, at literally the same family <laughs> is still running it. it it's, it's crazy. They, they, uh, they are rivaled only by the Yinglings in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. whose brewery started in 1826. Otherwise this, in fact, I think the shell company is maybe the third, I think Yingling is maybe the second oldest company in the United States, but Shell's got to be right up there. Mm. Anyway, 
so I'm working on that and another book at the same time, but I'm, but I'm still thinking about fear. I'm still writing another book. I'm writing another book about fear. So I'm awesome. <laughs> gonna dump all this stuff out there at some point so yeah, your new book stuff. your new book maureen is focuses or at least part partly focuses on the sorry the august what is the the, the minnesota brewery the august shell yes it's gonna it is gonna they are gonna be the focus of it because what kind of got me going on it was i thought how how did small breweries survive prohibition mm -hmm. and how did they, how did they get by afterward? And that, that just kind of took me down into this rabbit hole. And so the book is not, it, the book is really going to be thinking about beer as a form of alcohol. And I'm going to be thinking about alcohol and uh, race and small businesses. And I know that sounds like a weird combination. And the race in this case is that Minnesota indigenous peoples have long sort of inadvertently shaped alcohol policy. And so I'm gonna think, I'm thinking about how ideas about race shape alcohol policy, which in turn helps determine what a brewery can actually do. Like breweries today, they can make 30% alcohol beers if they want to, right? Like Jim Cook did with his utopias. Uh, but in the 19th century, for example, and in, in the 18th century, ideas about alcohol, especially in the 19th century, way before prohibition, um, Native Americans weren't allowed legally. You couldn't sell beer to them legally. They weren't allowed to possess beer. Uh, that was also true for people who were not, for anybody who was not white and of European descent. And I, I think that's an interesting way to think about beer that we, you know, beer isn't just this um, chemical reaction. It's not just this natural organic process of fermentation, but it's also a construct. We we make we make things in our own image and um beer is really loaded with uh lots and lots of other things that tell us how we think even now about ourselves there's there's for example i'm just going to give you an example uh, a guy named dave infante is a wonderful writer who spends a lot of time writing about beer and he wrote about malt liquors which were marketed in the US almost entirely to black urban people in the North in the 20th century. That's, that's how malt liquor, which is a form of, it's a kind of beer, right? It's a mm -hmm. fermented prod, product. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, he, he kind of opened my eyes. He's one of the several people who opened my eyes to the ways in which uh, beer even more so than when I started writing the book is is so complicated. There, there's almost nothing we can't think about by looking at a glass of beer. It's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it's true. <laughs> I, I think, um, I think that's true, and I think that that does, particularly in recent weeks or recent months, rather oh, the yeah. notion of yeah, the notion mm -hmm. of craft beer and craft breweries. I mean, they are becoming more of maybe the default pub of america sort of and the idea of well are they an inclusive space are they for everyone or are they 
for the or are they yeah, part of yeah. America's um, tumultuous colonial think, past? Yeah, I don't think they're really. I I just don't think they're. I, I do know people. I'm so grateful I gotten to know them in the last four or five years uh, who are really trying. I don't think beer is mm -hmm. very inclusive. I don't mm -hmm. think it's ever been very inclusive in any way, shape or form. And uh, it's fascinating to watch the craft beer wing in the United States there are two beer, beer industries. There's the huge Coors, Anheuser-Busch, and then Micro these other, boys. you know, so, right, right. And then there's this whole other thing. Yeah. And the it's the whole other thing that is being asked by some people to be um, different and better than, than beer has always been in the U.S. In the U.S., as mm -hmm. with, true with most industries and businesses, it's been dominated by white men. There's been no space made for anybody who's not at least white yeah. and I, I'm fascinated by this um, kind of consumer and employee expectation in the U.S. that craft beer should be different you know they're they're really trying to push a whole industry to acknowledge the presence and um and to respect the humanity of people who are not white men. That, that is, uh, I, that's never happened in beer before. That's very interesting. I, and again, mm -hmm. I, I'm not in the beer industry. I, maybe I should have made that, you know, I don't work in the beer industry. I've got nothing to do with it. I'm just in the story. And, but I, I think uh, the beer industry in this country has become an interesting barometer. I will also say that the Republic as we knew it is dead. That's clear. So I don't know how much it matters. It will just maybe be a space of resistance against white Republican America. I don't know. But there are lots of beer makers who resent being lumped in with the, you know, hippy dippy, you know, uh, we are all one gay pride mm. kind of thing. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, the, the beer industry is no different I, I'm really talking a lot. Sorry. The beer industry no, is no. really no different than every other business in the sense that it is comprised of white people, white educated people, and they are primarily men. And um, I don't know, will, will it make any difference? I don't know. But I think it's very interesting that it, it, it is an industry where people have said, I feel sufficiently confident about its ability to change or create a new world that I'm going to challenge this particular business structure in a way that it's never really been challenged before. I don't know if that makes sense, mm -hmm. actually. I don't know. Interesting point. No, for sure. It's got some momentum behind it. That's for sure. Especially as, we, as you know, we've seen over the last month or two. I know. I know. Crazy, huh? Wow. Didn't yeah. I really didn't see that coming? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, well, I I totally agree, and I, and I wonder, like, with with your points, Maureen, do you think that, like, you have like I think that's totally accurate in terms of there are two separate markets. You have essentially simplistically referred to as micro macro, 
and mm. the general public is going after the micro to to say get your act together um your industry is flawed it's it's uh it's archaic mm -hmm. and it needs to catch up with the times but do you think that may perhaps the macro breweries have a reckoning coming a little bit and they're they're they've gotten a bit of a pass in terms of oh well budweiser commercial kind of looked like it did in the 1970s good so that's question. just sort of good that's a good question i will say that when i was researching the book the first beer book um i did notice that in the 70s and 80s the beer industry not the beer industry Anheuser-Busch especially, and Miller, not Coors, never Coors, they did um, acknowledge a need to hire people who were not white. And they, they did open a very small space, but that never really made a dent in terms of what actually keeps the damn beer business going, which is the wholesalers, their truck drivers, you know, the people who own the warehouse, you know, all those people, yeah. the sales people, the, all these people that remains completely white. And I, that is a good question. Will anyone ever challenge them? And I'm not sure it would matter because I don't, I don't know how many people know this, but um, Anheuser-Busch and Miller are one huge, gigantic corporation right it's just this massive global entity and i don't even know whose rules they live under right mm -hmm. it's not an american company it's you know what i mean so uh, would they ever change i don't know it's hard to imagine i find it very difficult based on what i know about beer wholesalers and stuff i i i don't i don't see um i don't see who would call who would call the, the who would like, you know, ring an alarm on them? Like in the beer industry, the craft beer industry tends to rely on a lot of, um, tends to be willing to hire a lot of people who might not get hired by Anheuser-Busch, which again, is a gigantic global corporation. You know what I mean? So maybe, yeah, you would find more women working at a small brewery then you will work find working in an Anheuser-Busch facility. So I, I don't know. Somehow it seems like it's almost easier to challenge craft beer than the big macro industry. And I'm not sure it would make any difference because the macro industry is just this big global behemoth. You know, it doesn't have a face on it the way craft beer does. Yeah, absolutely. I know I've, I did know these stats in the US, I forget now, but in Canada, I think they're comparable, but macro beer and Anheuser-Busch and Coors, they dominate our beer scene, surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. And, and they, they mm -hmm. make up something like 90, 94, 93% of the market share. So, I mean, we, we talk a lot, we talk a big game in terms of craft beer. Right. It's pretty. That's, pretty that's a, you know, that's, a, that's right. And I think in the US now, it's maybe, well, I haven't, I've, I admit, I'm working on so many things. <laughs> I don't pay that much attention every day. You're but busy. I remember it was a real big deal when they finally yeah. got to like 10%. And I'm not sure how much further. So that's right. In the real world, 
where most of us live. I'm sitting here drinking one of my two standby beers, one of which is Coors Banquet. You know, what can I say? That's what I'm drinking. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? I, I That's what I'm drinking. It's um, I enjoy it. It's a wonderful yeah. beer. That's the other thing. Don't be a snob, man. There's some pretty good beer out there. <laughs> drink what you want to drink. Yeah. There's a, there's wow. Coors Banquet Option, is right? a delicious beer. Yeah. yeah. Well, it wasn't, yeah. Maureen, it wasn't a, a craft beer label that was on on the truck that you saw that inspired you to write that's the book, right. was it? That's, yeah. No, 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 no. Because have you, I mean, how many times do you ever get to see a craft beer name on a truck? That's right. I didn't even, Hardly. L- literally when I started the book, I didn't, I had no idea that there even was a craft beer industry. You know, mm-hmm. I did everything chronologically. So man, I started with, you know, pond scum and worked my way up to colonial America and then finally got to the German immigrants and then prohibition. And eventually I got to, you know, craft beer. I, I, I really had no idea. And I, I really lucked out when I wrote that part of the book because the guy who owned that magazine at the time that I mentioned earlier, all about beer, I, I just kind of called him up cold and you know, asked him some questions, and, and it turned out he had actually thought about being an historian at one point. So he was like, "Yeah, my God, you're going to write this book." So he started calling everybody. He knew everybody. He still does know everybody. He knew everyone. He started wow. calling people, say, "You got to talk to her." So all the interviews I did, all the contact I had, I knew nobody. I knew absolutely no one, and he made it possible for me to interview all these people. It was a much smaller industry back then, much smaller, a lot. Um, Here's an interesting stat, and then I'll stop talking. Uh, I I gave a talk at the Craft Brewers Conference, I think in 2008, on a panel with some other people. And there were like 2,000 people there, right? You know, the next time I went to a craft brewers conference in 2010, there were 11,000 people, man, is just asked. And then after that, there were, other, you know what I mean? It just turned into this thing after about 2004, 2005, the whole thing just, I didn't see that. I mean, I didn't know that was going to happen. It just, I'm just trying to write a book, right? What do I know? And the whole thing just kind of went, Kabungi, it just blew up, you know, it was so big all of a sudden. It was crazy. Crazy. Latest chapter in beer. Yeah. Yeah. That's I think that has been my great good fortune. I I walked into this completely blind, knew nothing about it, landed there at this moment when the whole thing just kind of took off around again, Mm -hmm. 2004, 5, 6, right around there. And I have been fortunate to be a very close observer without actually being in it since then. So I, I've had a remarkable opportunity. I, I just feel so fortunate to see this industry from kind of sitting very close on the sidelines without getting enmeshed in its politics, because that's not what I want to do. You know, I don't want to, I'm a historian. I want to stick with the past. I want I want to do the work I do. That's awesome. Yeah. Actually, that's a good, like, I, I find that so interesting, like, as, like you said, sort of as an observer, right? You, you didn't work in the industry. It wasn't, no. It sounds like craft beer wasn't, or beer in general wasn't really your passion. So no. I'm maybe just personally curious, is like, as someone who really, you know, sort of 
started from a clean slate, did all this research and, and, and then writing the book, what was maybe one of the moments along the way where you were kind of like, oh, like that's, that's something awesome and interesting. Like at the beginning of, of the podcast that you said, you know, it sort of changed your life. So maybe what was one of those life changing yeah. moments, if you don't mind sharing? Oh, well, there's the intellectual moments. For example, uh, here's an, this just kind of stunned me. I, I mean, I knew as a historian that there had been prohibition happened, right? But I didn't know anything about it. It, it was just uh, emotionally staggering to me how devastating it was for these families that had built these businesses by that time over three generations, right? Have their businesses just destroyed it, it was that that just that just kind of stunned me the viciousness with which they were attacked the bush family was denounced twice publicly in congress they were accused of being spies you know that that really got to me that beer could that alcohol could mm -hmm. um generate that much um passion but then I guess the other life altering stuff was, man, I met all these when I was writing the book, especially at the end when I was in, I met so many amazing, really smart, talented people I never would have met otherwise. Like I got to tell you, Ken Grossman and Jim Cook, Jim Cook owns Boston Beer, which makes Sam Adams and Ken Grossman in Sierra Nevada. Uh, they, you know, they're just, um, they're both remarkable uh, talented, creative, intelligent people. And to get to know them was just amazing. So those kinds of things changed my life. Plus, as I say, right after I wrote, when the book came out, all of a sudden beer just kind of took off. And I, you know, because I had written this book and there wasn't another book like it, I got kind of, um, I don't know. My life has just been made a lot more rich, both emotionally and intellectually because of beer. I have a lot of close friends in the beer biz. And I, again, I try to keep, when I'm writing, when I'm thinking about beer and doing my work, I try not, I try to keep away from, you know, getting involved in beer politics and personalities and stuff. Cause it's like anything else. There are personalities, there are conflicts, yeah. there are power struggles. You know what I mean? There's all that crap. I don't care about any of that stuff. I just kind of want to know what happened. So um, that's a way it's in which it's it, it turned out to be life-altering. I met all these people I never would have met and have had some amazing, fun, sometimes slightly drunken experiences with them. <laughs> Those are the best experiences, of course. Yeah, yeah, no. Byproduct and, of beer. Yeah. Good experiences <laughs> most yeah. of the time. So, yes, yeah, there you go. Great, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Marie, believe it or not, I can't believe it's been an, an hour, but um, I do have one final question for you. And it goes Please. kind of against, it goes kind of against your profession, but I'm going to give That's it right. anyway. Because I think I really liked your analysis and your nuanced approach to the craft beer industry because because we garrett and i often on our tours we end typically not always but sometimes we end with a, a question on getting guests predictions for the craft beer industry because i think mm -hmm. what you said was entirely 
I think entirely sensible in terms of, well, there's just so many mouths to feed in terms of craft beer. Lots of people see the craft beer industry as a bubble. I mean, there's just so many taps. I mean, not everyone can own a craft brewery. It's just not how the industry can work. So I think oftentimes, particularly with folks and individuals who work in the craft beer industry, there's a lot of optimism. And optimism is great, particularly if you're an entrepreneur. I mean, it's better to have faith in your business yes. than to not. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. yeah, but but I would love, and again, you're a historian, so I'm going against the grain here, but I'm going to ask you, where do you see the craft beer industry um, a decade from now? Do you see it still booming? Do you still see it still growing? Or is it is it a bit of a fad? What do you think? I, I think, um, well, I, I always say now the industry formerly known as craft beer, because I'm not sure there is a craft beer industry anymore. I do know there's a, there's a trade organization, the Brewers Association in Boulder, Colorado, that represents a group, only a small portion of those 8,000 breweries, not all of them, only a small portion, and those breweries can make up to, I think they're up to 8 million barrels now a year or something like that. So you tell me, you know, I don't know what craft beer, I don't know what that means. And if we just think about uh, brewing as a small, small viable business, it seems to me that in 10 years, there sure won't be 8,000 breweries. I cannot... I just can't imagine that. And here is something we didn't even talk about, but in part because beer isn't just beer. Beer is a beverage and beer's biggest competitor is every other beverage, most especially Coca-Cola and other soft drinks, right? So it is hard for me to imagine a world over the next 10 years that can sustain 10,000 very small businesses that are, I, you know, it's not easy to make a profit, right? It's, it's an agricultural product that depends on the availability of hops, of water, aluminum. All of those things have been badly stressed over the last 18 months or so, all of them. Yes. And even now, you know, so there's a, beer is a business. So do I know what's going to happen? I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen, but I think, um, in 20 years, people are going to kind of look back on, oh, yeah, there was a time when, yeah, there used to be a lot of breweries and a lot of different beer. I think we're always still going to have a lot of different kinds of beers. But if capitalism tells us anything, it's that it's very hard to sustain industries in which there's so much bifurcation where you have these giants who control don't control, who have access to huge chunks of the market and then a much, much smaller subset. So it's a very niche specialty industry. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know how viable any niche small industry is. Maureen, thank you so much. Your perspective <laughs> and your, your abundance of knowledge, I think we are all more knowledgeable for it. Um, I just want to give a shout out, make sure if you're interested in beer history, Ambitious Brew um, by Maureen Ogle. It was a wonderful text and be sure to pick up your copy because uh, it's uh, 
And I guess there's a new edition from well, the, yeah, that's that's the one that's in print. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Easy enough to find Kobo, Kobo in Canada, uh, Absolutely. Amazon Kobo. in Canada, uh, Amazon globally. I, by the way, I'll just say here, here, interesting little side note for Please. your listeners. Um, I got the rights back to the original version of the book so that I had the rights. And uh, so um, I revised the book gently. I didn't, I didn't make enormous alterations in it. And then I republished it. And it's a wonderful and liberating experience to be able to publish your own books. I, I tell you, the conventional mode of publishing is just a nightmare. It's awful. And um, so it was, It was. Uh, there is a new edition and it's the one I revised and edited and published myself. And the new book I'm gonna publish entirely by myself. I, I don't wanna Amazing. deal with publishers anymore. Is there, Maureen, last question, is there, is there a title that we can look out for? for No, there's not. Two? You know, you know what? There isn't one. And that's because it's still kind of, it will come. I, I, uh, you know, I can see it. I've got, I've done. Yeah. Yeah. And I may, I'm thinking real seriously about taking part of what I thought was going to be in that book and just publishing it separately as a short history of craft beer, just a standalone history. I, I have already written all of that and I may just publish that. And if I do, that will be called Lunatics and Liquid Art. Ooh. The great thing about being in, if you can, when, when you can publish yourself is you can make your own decisions about how you want to like, you know, <laughs> present stuff to the public. Yeah. Absolutely. It's so liberating. So liberating. I might have well, to get some. It's uh, like podcasting, you know, it's oh, yeah. so liberate. Oh, yes. You know what I mean? For sure. Yeah. I might have to get some pointers from you when I want to publish a book my, uh, one day myself. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, I spent a lot of time studying up, you know, I've had this is I've published four conventional books using an agent and, you know, all that crap, and eh, not worth it in, mm -hmm. in this in 2021. It's no longer necessary to mm -hmm. do that, because there are so many ways you can actually pub not, like you can do a podcast right well now yeah. there are ways you can actually publish a physical actual book by yourself with and make it look nice and look like a real book and the whole thing so great to know yeah Absolutely. it has been very very exciting for me i am i i feel so liberated by not being trapped in the conventional publishing system god you i can't tell you how good that feels mm -hmm. to be out of it well maureen yeah. can anyway. we can we have you on the podcast for the when the book no, comes out. There is no universe in which I'm ever going to talk to you guys again. No, yes, you can. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I was going to say, Andy, what did you yeah. do? Yeah, we'll talk about that. We're going to buy Andy a new computer before we do that. Yeah, Maureen. Yeah. Yes, yeah. you no should. No more cliffhanger you, questions. Yeah, I know. That was hilarious. Oh my That's God, great. that was funny. Okay. Oh All right, I, gentlemen, it's been Maureen, delightful. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you so much, Maureen. Thank you. We'll Thanks. talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Okay. Good night. Good night. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thank you for listening as well. You can help my podcast grow by sharing my podcast with family and friends and subscribe on whichever platform from where you're listening. 
Also, check out my Instagram at beergotmehere for beer photos and future beer reviews. For more information on Rolling Hops Beer Tours, their website and a link to all their media is in the episode description. We will see you in the next episode. Cheers! love and again you're a historian so i'm going against the grain here but i'm gonna ask you oh i can't hear it i can't oh, hear it you cut out sound <laughs> no sound right at the perfect time <laughs> i know we're all waiting and that was like oh, the perfect no. moment for anyone. There we go. Yeah, we can hear oh my goodness. Can you hear me? Oh, yep, we can hear you. Yeah. Now, yes, that we was got everything. Best. But that was the absolute best. Never uh, using right the computer again. <laughs> All right. I don't know where I was right. cut off. But right at your right before right your question. Right as you were. Literally right before.